Sunday a year, what he called a Give It All Sunday, in which he encouraged members of the church to give their entire paycheck as an offering to the church. So uh, don't worry, we're not going to do ever a Give It All Sunday here. Um, but, you know, being he was a good, faithful, and um, what's the word, authentic, I guess, Baptist pastor, he too would also uh, give it all, his entire paycheck, on that Sunday once a year. So, obviously, he didn't make a lot of money in those days, but, you know, whenever you have a, whenever you give it all, whatever your paycheck is, it's a hit regardless, and it was a big hit to our family, and my mom remember, or I remember my mom telling me that we basically spend the entire year uh, after that Give It All Sunday catching up uh, financially uh, until, of course, the next Give It All Sunday would come and we'd, we'd kind of be back in that same situation. And, you know, because of because that financial hit, like, uh, it was just, would, it put us in some tight spots financially um, and needing, and I remember this, and uh, on occasion even, my parents would borrow from the offering, which uh, sounds horrible just saying it, so uh, I understand. But on the other hand, I remember, um, you know, there, it was a type, I guess what I'm saying is things got pretty bad uh, otherwise. So my parents found themselves in a situation where despite this extremely problematic practice of, of borrowing from the offering to pay their bills, uh, if the other thing didn't, if that didn't happen, oftentimes there wasn't food in the house uh, for their kids. I was, I remember one story my mom telling me about. Uh, they went to a conference in Springfield, Missouri, and my mom worked the childcare uh, at the conference the last night, and then she got paid like ten bucks, and that she took that ten dollars and bought loaf of bread and I think some peanut butter and jelly, and that like fed us the whole way home back to New York City. Um, and I, I was thinking back, too, about uh, when I was a kid, like I said, we were in New York City, but my mom's parents were here, and my grandfather hunted elk in those days. And so every winter, uh, we were very fortunate. He would go out and get an elk, shoot an elk, and he would, every, every uh, winter, he'd fly out to New York City with a suitcase full of elk meat. I don't know if they'd still let you do that these days, but a suitcase full of frozen elk meat, and that's what we'd eat the entire winter. Um, so I, I, you know, obviously, um, you know, I hesitate to even say the whole borrowing from the offering thing, but, you know, you know, we weren't using, my parents weren't using it to go fly on private jets or go on vacations. They're using it just to survive. And, um, like I said, because in between those times, things could get pretty dire, uh, if they didn't. And there's one story I remember hearing from my parents that has always kind of stuck with me. And I don't, I wasn't old enough to really remember it, thankfully. Um, I don't know, obviously, the whole backstory, but basically, the situation was that we were running low on food in the household and didn't have money to buy more. And we were so low, in fact, that one morning, all the food that my mom had in the entire house to feed her kids was a box of pancake mix. That's it. Pancake mix for a family of six. And unfortunately, it wasn't one of those situations where, like, the next day was payday. Uh, you know, I, like I said, I don't know the entire situation, but... All I know is, like, to all we had was pancake mix, and it wasn't like there was going to be sudden relief just around the corner. Um, so obviously, just just hearing this story, as a, like I said, a, as a parent myself, it, just hearing it, it, it kind of hangs on me, uh, weighs on me, I guess is the word. Just I, I try to imagine 
myself in that position and wonder what I would do if I was in that situation with, with only pancake mix to feed uh, my children. Um, so, uh, the, the, you know, there's this, this happened that morning, and, and my dad, again, it was a pastor, and he had scheduled uh, a lunch meeting with another local pastor. Uh, they're, they're still friends to this day, actually. Bob Adrian was his name. And my dad's plan was to go to lunch with his pastor and over lunch share with his pastor kind of the situation that, you know, we're as a family really struggling financially and ask for some help, uh, you know, for some food and such. So as, as lunchtime approached, uh, Pastor Adrian arrived, came to pick up my dad in front of our house, and uh, I found this on the internet. This is actually the house we lived in. This is, the church actually owned this, what's called a parsonage in the church world. Uh, this is in Flushing, Queens, neighborhood of New York City. And it looks, it's kind of crazy, you know, it looks so tiny these days. And it's probably, who knows, it's not a great picture. That I looked up this house to the left. When I was there, there was this grandma, and then she had this little grandson who we, my sister and I remember as kind of being a spoiled brat. Uh, but I looked up this house, actually, to the left. It's for sale for uh, 960000 uh, So if anybody wants to make an investment with me, uh, I'm willing to go in with you live back in New York City. So my, so Pastor Adrian, he arrived at the front, you know, he pulled up, and there's just a short, just a short step there to the, from the, you know, to the sidewalk, to the, to the curb. But my dad made it out the front door, and before he could get to the car, my mom came out of the house yelling and screaming, and Karina knows my mom, that when she says, when I say yelling and screaming, she was yelling and screaming about how she had nothing in the house to feed her children, but my dad was going to go have a steak dinner with his pastor. So she was not happy, and like I said, if you know my mom, my mom is not afraid to be boisterous when it comes to protecting her kids or, you know, standing up for her family. And, uh, you know, one thing about my dad is he loves himself a steak dinner, especially when it's on someone else's dime. I mean, can you blame him? Uh, <laughs> so, unfortunately for my dad, uh, the steak dinner never happened. And I don't know, if, to be fair, if it was ever going to be a steak dinner. Uh, but the dinner, lunch, whatever, it never happened. And Pastor Adrian reached into his wallet and he pulled out whatever cash he had, which I think was a $50 bill, and he handed it to my mom. My mom took the $50 and she went and bought groceries. And the, the two pastors, my dad and this Pastor Adrian, came back, or they stayed at the house and watched uh, me and my three sisters while my mom went shopping. Now, uh, in hindsight, my mom has kind of chuckled and thought, like, you know, maybe if I would have not <laughs> ran out of the house like a screaming maniac, maybe Pastor Adrian could have got us some more money and some more groceries. But can you blame her? Can you blame her in that situation? And, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's funny because I, I, was, I was asking my dad about this. I said, Dad, what's, what's our address of where the house we lived in? And he said, uh, you know, he was kind of curious what I was talking about. I said, oh, I'm going to tell that story. And he's like, oh, thanks, Lauren, for throwing me under the bus this Sunday. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I, I feel bad for my dad because I think, you know, he was probably doing the best situation he could do in the house. Uh, but they told me, my parents were just out in, in the Kansas City area this last, uh, I think around Thanksgiving, and the pastor that they knew, Pastor Adrian from New York City, uh, is now a pastor in the Kansas City area. And I guess they're laughing together. This story came up, and they're laughing about how, um, you know, remembering that experience. Now, certainly, I think, oh gosh, 30 years probably, to be frank, about that long. It's, it's easy to laugh like 30 years later 
about that experience. But in many ways, like, I think those situations growing up still kind of, they're still kind of there, I think. I think that's, I think that's something we'd all say about our childhood and our families growing up, that while, we, while time and distance and space has given us time to heal, like those, those wounds, they stay with us. Um, and I think, you know, many of us can probably relate to what myself and my family went through growing up, um, you know, during our formative years as a child, or heck, maybe more even, more even today as we raise our own children. Um, you know, certainly those financial challenges that I talked about are something many of us can relate to. You know, every month it seems like the money comes in, but every month the money goes out, and more money goes out than comes in. The bills keep piling up, and the finances keep running short, and we're not sure how much longer we can keep this up. Maybe it's, maybe it's a health issue we're, we're aware of, you know, suffering, a, a, a dealing with a difficult diagnosis or a long-term health ailment, or, I mean, heck, just to be real, maybe it's just affording health care this day and age. I mean, just paying for medical insurance can just be a, a challenge in its own right. And it can be pretty scary going into an unknown future, whether it be from a health ailment or just, like I said, paying for health insurance. Uh, you know, maybe, it, maybe it's something work-related, right? And, and we're all fortunate that, you know, thinking about time and space, you know, I was thinking about the Great Recession, um, you know, 10, 12 years ago. And, and, you know, most of us don't have to worry about the threat of layoffs in our job. So we don't have to worry about so much about that stress. But I was, I was reading this this past week that um, I think it is that uh, at least half of LGBTQ plus persons have to worry about losing their jobs. One in three. One in three. Wow. One in three Only one in three are out of work. So that means two-thirds of LGBTQ plus people are worried about coming out for fear of losing their jobs. Yeah. I mean, that's, wow, that is a lot. I can't imagine, I cannot imagine having to hang on to that. Um, what an incredible, what an incredible burden to carry. <sighs> Sorry, it's kind of heavy. Uh, that story is always kind of heavy for me. And I think these things we talk about, they're heavy for us. Like, they weigh on us. Whether, whether we're in the midst of them right now or whether they've been in our past, they're heavy on us, and we feel that burden, even if it's a burden from long ago, we can still feel that burden. Um, So I think the question is, like, what do we do? What do we do when we're in these situations? Whether from the past, like I said, with my childhood, or whether uh, we're dealing with something in the midst right now, like, how do we, how do we live? How do we move forward? How do we continue when we're in the midst of these situations moving forward? Um, this morning we're actually looking at one of my favorite characters in the Bible, um, stories of Elijah the prophet. So um, Elijah was a prophet in the, the Hebrew Bible, or what we call, Christians call the, the Old Testament. And we're starting a new series today called, as you see, Faith in the Desert, Stories of Elijah the Prophet. Now I bet we, we all know what it's like to be at times in the desert, whether uh, certainly we've probably been in the desert literally at some point in our lives, but what I'm talking about is those metaphorical, those times in our lives that life just seems dry, life seems barren, and we're just, we're praying for rain. Praying for rain. So for the next four weeks, we're going to be looking at 
uh, how Elijah dealt with the, his own dry spells in his life and learn about how he made his way through those obviously literal but also metaphorical dry spells, the deserts in his life. So let me, let me first give a little backstory about Elijah because uh, one of the reasons I like Elijah so much is because just such an interesting character. Um, so Elijah comes on the scene rather suddenly in the book of what's called 1 Kings, which is the story of the, the kings of the ancient Israel uh, in 1 Kings 17. So 1 and 2 Kings kind of provide this history of these kings of Israel and uh, talks about how most, most of the time these kings were unfaithful to God's ways. And there was perhaps uh, one king who was beyond uh, all the rest about being bad, being unfaithful in God's eyes. And in the first Kings it says uh, that Ahab, this King Ahab, did more to provoke the anger of the Lord, the God of Israel, than all the kings who had gone before him. So this King Ahab was, uh, at least according to the first Kings writer, not a good dude, right? Um, so uh, he, he set up uh, worship for this, this false god Baal, uh, but also something else he did apparently was he instituted child sacrifice, which, you know, not, not a great thing, obviously. So what's interesting is that almost as soon as Ahab starts doing this, setting up this worship to this false god Baal, Elijah comes onto the scene. Now what's interesting about Elijah is his name, his name has just, his name means my God is Yahweh. So think about this, like uh, whenever you said you know, whenever we said Elijah, we're basically saying, hey, my God is Yahweh, is here to see you. So, like, imagine this. Imagine we're sitting, like, in an old, I don't know, an ancient court, courtroom. What's the word? Uh, the kingly palace, whatever. Thank you, Tom. Um, we're sitting in that, that kingly palace, and the king is sitting there on his throne. And, you know, the, they have the, the guard, and uh, I don't know, do they have justers in Old Testament Israel? Let's, I don't know, whatever they have. They have all the people there, and, you know, the royal court. And, um, you know, Elijah comes up and, you know, knocks on the door and says, I'm here to see King Ahab. And, and the, whoever it is announces to King Ahab, hey, King Ahab, all hail King Ahab, long live King Ahab. My God is Yahweh, is here to see you. How well would that go down? Probably not great. Um, if I cannot get too political here. But, you know, I was thinking this past couple of weeks, uh, our president went to England, I guess it was. And there was this debate about... <laughs> supporters versus detractors, you know. Um, imagine however we feel about it, we won't get into this morning. It, you know, imagine how the president would feel if, if someone came walking in with like a, you know, uh, Trump-Putin, like 2020 shirt or 2016, whatever. Like, uh, we can imagine the president wouldn't be thrilled with that, that uh, reminder, fair enough. Um, so in the same way, like, when, uh, when Elijah came in to see King Ahab, basically it was a daily reminder that this guy was disagreeing with him and saying, you're, you're in the wrong, King Ahab. So we can imagine why King Ahab was not a big fan of Elijah. And as we, as we continue on these next weeks, we'll see more about that, uh, of why King Ahab did not like Elijah. Um, so... It was, a, it was a very interesting experience of just Elijah being a constant reminder and a constant kind of, you know, twisting the knife every time he went to see King Ahab of, hey, Ahab, you're in the wrong, and I'm going to be here always in your face to remind you that you're in the wrong. Uh, what else is interesting about this text is that um, 
the god, the god Baal was understood to be the god of rain and fertility. So when, in, when Elijah walks in, Elijah comes into King Ahab's palace and is like, Hey, my god is Elijah, or sorry, my god is Yahweh, is here to see you. Elijah comes in and says, Hey, King Ahab, I know you worship Baal, but guess what? There's going to be a drought and there's going to be no rain. And if Baal is the god of fertility and rain, then, then Elijah is basically saying, Boom, we got a direct challenge right here. A throw it out between who is the real god? Is it going to be Yahweh? Or is it going to be your god, Baal? We're going to see right now who's in charge, who's the real god. So, uh, as we read, and we'll get to the text, the, the story goes that um, it, was, it was for real, this for real drought. And God sent uh, Elijah to this wadi, which is a seasonal water feature, I guess, and was fed um, morning and evening by ravens, so he'd get some food from the ravens who would bring him food, and he had the water there. But eventually, like I said, since it's a seasonal water feature, the, the wadi dried up and uh, due to the lack of rain. And, and the Lord, the text says, the Lord spoke to Elijah again. Um, so we're going to read here. If you'd like to follow along, we're going to read from 1 Kings 17, verse 9. We'll have it here on the screen, too, if you'd like to follow along. Uh, so I was at a networking meeting this last week, and they said, What's something you like to do that's old-fashioned? So I said, I still like to read the Bible out of the Bible <laughs> from the plate paper text. So um, we're going to read. If you'd like to follow along, like I said, it's on the screen. Um, so verse 9. So the Lord said, Go now to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and live there, for I have commanded a widow there to feed you. So he set out and went to Zarephath, when he came to the gate of the town, a widow was there gathering sticks. He called her and said, Bring me a little water in a vessel so that I might drink. As she was going to bring it, he called to her and said, Bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. But she said, As the Lord your God lives, I have nothing baked, only a handful of meal in a jar and a little oil in a jug. I am now gathering a couple of sticks so that I might go home and prepare it for myself and my son that we may eat it. And die. So things were obviously pretty grim. Elijah said to her, Do not be afraid. Go and do as you have said, but first make me a little cake and bring it to me, and afterwards make something for yourself and your son. For thus saith the Lord God of Israel, This jar of meal will not be empty, the jug of oil will not fail until that day the Lord sends rain on the earth. So she went and did as Elijah said, so that she as well as her her and her house, he and his her household, uh, ate for many days. The jar of meal was not emptied, neither did the jug of oil fail, according to the word of the Lord that he spoke from Elijah. So this is a, this is a story that's resonated with me because it just reminds me of that story that I had growing up of the pancake mix. Uh, you know. I kind of picture my mom as being in that same predicament as that widow, of being like, I have this last meal to feed my kids, then after that, I don't know what's going to happen. Now, you know, thankfully I can probably imagine that my mom was never really in the predicament thinking, I'm going to have our last meal together and die. But you can imagine it was, it was not a great place to be in, whether for my mom or, or for this widow long ago. She was already in a tough spot because she was 
again, a widow. And in those times, so much of your economic security was based on your husband. So being without a husband, she's already extremely precarious. And then comes along the drought, and she is basically, she's basically helpless. And she has her last meal, and she gets some sticks to gather, to, to burn a fire, to heat the oil, to make some bread. And she's like, we're going to have one last good meal, and we're going to die. So Elijah and this widow, they find themselves in a desperate, seemingly hopeless situation, similar to what many of us gone through. Yet what happened? And yes, we could say they had enough to eat, right? But I think that's sort of a, a simplistic view, if I can say that. Because I think what really happened is that God's grace broke through. And we might say, yeah, God took care of them. How unexpected is that? But I think there's something about the way that God took care of them that is unexpected. Like there wasn't just this, this pile of food that showed up, right? There wasn't this stock of grain that just appeared outside their door. There weren't multiplying jars of oil appearing in her kitchen. Just little by little, Every day, there's enough. And what's interesting is, is even before the widow, think back to Elijah at the wadi, being fed by the raven. Now, if you don't know much about the Old Testament and the ancient Israel rules, uh, a raven was considered unclean. They weren't supposed to have anything to do with it. With it. Yet this bird that was considered unclean, that Elijah was supposed to have nothing to do with, is the bird that keeps Elijah alive. Unexpected, completely unexpected. But this is the thing about God. This is the thing, if I can get my clapping on order, right? This is the thing about God. In situations of extreme need, God's grace breaks in. Even when others are resisting, God's grace breaks through, but I believe that God's grace breaks through in ways unexpected. And I think that's sometimes hard to notice because we're taught to only see God in those big things, right? The big grain of, uh, pile of grain that appears, multiplying jars of oil. Like, we're taught to think, like, this is how we see God, not in just having enough every day. But in so doing, we miss out, we miss out on those small acts of grace. I mean, it's like, you were probably taught this just as well as I was, that when you're in a financial bind, you're supposed to see a big check come in the mail. I think I've shared this story before, but it's like, when I was, when I was in college, it's like, we called it, I called it check in the mail theology. If you just had enough faith, if you just trusted God enough and God would reward you, uh, this big check would come in and solve your problems. You know, you're taught that if you're sick, if you're dealing with illness, whatever, that healing is just supposed to happen. That if you're struggling with your relationship, and this is, trust God and things will just, will take care of itself. Let me tell you, I wish things were that easy. I wish things were that easy. 
But again and again, it seems like God chooses to act in ways unexpected. Like when you're not sure where your next meal is going to come from and someone buys you lunch. When the threat of layoffs is hanging over your head and your coworkers are right there with you, supporting you, kind of commiserating with you, saying, we're with you, whatever happens, we support you. When your relationship seems at the breaking point, but you can find a counselor, someone who's willing to help you and your partner work together through that challenge and offer you a ray of hope. I remember several years ago, Karina and I had just moved out to Colorado, and uh, we, I think she was going to school and I was working at Chase Bank as a teller. Obviously didn't make a lot of money back then. And we lived in my parents' basement, uh, not something you want to do uh, being married. I think it was the second time we lived in, in a parent's basement, uh, so not something I was super fond of, working at Chase, trying to figure out a way to a better life. And we lived close to my Chase branch, so I would ride my bike to work every day, and I parked it, uh, you know, attached to this bike thing, and I locked it up every day. And one day, some dude came by, and he clipped the lock, and he was, I mean, he was out of there before he knew it. And man, I was bummed. I was so bummed. Like, we were had nothing. We had, like, no money. I didn't have money to replace it, and, like, my transportation to get to work was gone. So I was not happy, and, and, um, you know, I, the, 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 uh, there was a bunch of, like, um, you know, college dudes, kind of my age, these college guys who were the personal bankers, and I was kind of like, had this envious, bitter relationship with them, because I'm like, dude, I'm just as educated as you all, and here I am in this loser teller job, and y'all are like, living up as these personal bankers, so they kind of like, feigned their concern, but realized just like, whatever guys, you don't care if it's whatever. Um... So we called the police, and they, they gave us a report, or we gave them a report. And as the, the, the officer was in the, the branch, you know, whenever people walk into a branch and they see a police officer, they think, like, a robbery, which thankfully I didn't ever have to deal with. Um, this, this, the manager from Burger King walks in, and he's here to do his, his daily deposit. And I'm back at the, the business deposit area, and he's like, hey, what's happened? I just said... This is what happened. And I'd called, this happened in the morning, and I'd called Karina, and, and uh, she came to pick me up, and we just kind of went to lunch and just kind of commiserate. And uh, we went over to this Bird King. It's at the Bird King, if you know, on 80th and Sheridan. I'm assuming it's still open. We went to Bird King, and we went to order our lunch and kind of commiserate together. And I, we walk in, we order lunch, and that manager shows up. And he's like, hey, guys, let me take care of your lunch. And, like, did that lunch replace the cost of my bike? Nope. Did it equal the value my bike? Nope. But for me, the more so I look back on that, that is God's grace breaking through in a moment that was just terrible for me. I know even in hindsight, it just seems like, Lauren, they stole your bike. What does it matter? But that bike was my transportation. That was like my, <laughs> that was like my prized attachment. It was gone. But that, that manager was like, hey, lem, this is something nice that I can do for you. And, and I'm going to be frank, I don't believe that it was just that manager's. I believe that it was God working through that manager. So I think that's, 
an example of how God chooses to work through us in ways unexpected. God's unending, relentless grace and love. I think this is, this is something I believe to be true about God, that God is always present, even in our midst, even in our struggles. And while we're taught to think of God as just acting, kind of sitting on, on the throne in heaven, kind of like throwing out grace or, or healings or whatever, like if we're faithful enough, um, you know, if we're good enough, if we're trusting God enough, like just kind of on a whim if we can say that. What if God is a God who is always present here, always with us, always faithful, always loving, always working for good, not in those ways that we're taught to expect, but rather those constant things, those little things, those things we see as little, but really big things of God breaking through to show us grace. Because the thing is, when we begin to see God's grace in this way, when we begin to see God's action in this way, I mean, we see God everywhere. We see God in the smile of a stranger, God in the warm embrace of a friend, God in that kind action of the, the co-worker. And it's not that God is the smile or that God is the hug or that God is that act of kindness, but rather that God works through those actions and those people to bring God's grace and love into our lives in ways unexpected. And as I shared this the last week, it's so often, it's because it happens, let me slow down. God so often acts through people when people, we work together. That's when we see God so often breaking through. You know, my hope and prayer for us as a community of faith is that we may be, as a group, a community that gives and receives grace. I think there's something powerful about not just giving grace, but receiving grace. I think we all know people in our lives who are good at their giving. They're good at giving. But receiving can sometimes be a hard thing. Receiving grace can be a hard thing. So giving grace to others when in need, receiving grace from others when in need. That is the gift of community. And that's a very real way where God's grace is at work in our world. And I hope that we can remember and never forget that in these moments of hopelessness, seeming hopelessness, in those times of desperation, in those times of struggle, that God's grace is always, always, always breaking in.